You're listening to Cards and Cubes, a show about board games that you didn't grow up playing. Hello, everyone. This is Cards and Cubes, Season 2, Episode 5. I am Risto. And I'm Trevor. And today we're going to talk about metagaming. But before then, Trevor has a wonderful trivia prepared for me again i'm so excited yes yes i know you're so excited uh everybody who has listened to us for a little while will know that once in a while we have to double check christo's dedication to gaming ask him an impossible trivia question (laughs) and then if he doesn't get it right within the parameters then he's gonna get kicked off the podcast and he's still here so i guess he's done pretty well so far (laughs) <laughs> we were just talking about uh, the last one wasn't vague enough, so Trevor was considering giving me like the median game of uh, popularity on Board Game Geek or something. Yeah, <laughs> just pick something out of the middle of the yeah. list. <laughs> because, because last time wasn't uh, difficult enough, so let's see how it yeah. goes this time. <laughs> yeah, so last time was you know it was pretty easy. I think you had to guess the. Uh, was it the least least, least popular game? But it's or, not really the least yeah. popular because BG cuts off at like a thousand, I think. So it's like or the thousandth yeah. game, probably. I think it was probably like the the least played game during a certain period was the or last a one. month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. During a month, yep. So this time we're going to be going on all time stats, and this is again for the benefit of the listeners. We're looking at board game geek data, which is obviously incomplete because not everybody in the world who plays board games takes the time to input data. But the data we're going to be testing you on today, Haristo, is automatic. This is not dependent on user input, so you know it's good. We are going to see if you can guess three of the top ten most viewed games. Huh, like board of, game of, of all time? Yes. That's so weird, man. Uh, hmm. I'm just going to go with Ticket to Ride just because it's like the most everything game of everything ever. Failure. Seriously, it's not the one of the most yeah. viewed games? Wow. Uh, well, I mean, think... I guess uh, everyone I think, like knows about it. Or I think <laughs> maybe. maybe the demographic that is playing Ticket to Ride is not really looking at Board Game Geek, but... <sighs> One of these actually on here it uh, bucks that uh, that is some or I guess that conclusion. So uh, try me? again. No, I yeah I was gonna actually guess Monopoly, but I'm not gonna guess it because I think that's a, a, a bit ridiculous because I don't think anyone who plays Monopoly actually looks at it on BGG. Is and that also you not it's, guessing? It's kind of a joke. <laughs> I don't know. Are you are you telling me that people, it's not on there? <laughs> people look at it just to downvote it and put like ones next to it. <laughs> Maybe. Because no. I think that's the only reason for BGG people to go go on that page. Yeah. <laughs> Monopoly's uh, page. Monopoly is not there, but there's a game <sighs> like you're warm. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the, the other warm game, I guess, is Catan. So please tell me Catan is on there. It is not. Are you kidding me? <laughs> think a little dumber. Sorry? No. <laughs> Wait, before you before you sink all your guesses into this one, just think about like what game makes it onto every okay, list. No, no, no. Uh, let's uh, say the more popular game like Terraforming Mars. 
Yes, Terraforming yeah. Mars is number two on the list. It currently has, if I, oh gosh, it doesn't have commas, so I have to like close one eye and count this. It's 6,786,633 views. That's pretty cool. I kind of wonder what number one is actually, but let's see something popular, ridiculously popular. Good. Huh. It's actually kind of got me a little. Uh, how about any Days of Wonder games like Five Tribes, for example? Five Tribes. Mm. There is not a single Days of Wonder how game. How about freaking Blood Rage, I guess? Not in the top 10. What the heck? Risk? No. Risk, whoever plays Risk, I think, doesn't check it. By the way, out. Catan, I believe, is in the top 20. It has just over 4 million. Close yeah. enough. Gosh. Um, like social deduction games, like Secret Hitler. I don't know about that, though. That's kind of funny. No, no social deduction games. Uh, uh, this is crazy, actually. I'm trying to think. Oh, Seven Wonders. Seven Wonders is always a good guess. Seven Wonders is in the top 20. It, it's got 4,131,324. Some reason I keep not getting the top top games. Think about you're you're gonna like oh, smack Lords your forehead. Lords of Waterdeep. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might be getting kicked ah. off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've guessed at least like three of the top twenty. I just can't for some reason think of the top ten games. I think Blood Rage is in the top fifty. I oh. see it down down on the list, but it, it is not. I'm trying to think of, like, really, really pop... Oh, gosh, Azul. (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, Think of, like, what's the number one ranked game on BGG right now? Uh, I don't know, Twilight Struggle. I actually don't even know. Actually, Twilight Struggle, you got it. (laughs) Twilight Struggle is is not the number one game on BGG, but it is in the top ten of most viewed. That's just so weird that, like, Twilight Struggle has more views than Azul or something, because I would think... I don't know. I guess people yeah. are like interested in their clicking just because it's number one. Oh gosh, Gloomhaven. Sorry. Gloomhaven. Yeah, Gloomhaven <laughs> is first Derp. with eleven million three hundred thousand nine hundred eight. No, I completely forgot about Gloom- Gloomhaven. But I think uh, to your point, gosh, I should have actually. This was really easy. I just go down to like top ten of all time because I think <laughs> no cheating. People people just click on the games that are top ten of all times. Like, do you think actually Twilight Struggle is even played like? I don't know, has like 0.1% of the plays. I doubt it. It's like a really, really long, serious two-player game. (laughs) And I don't think like even 0.1% of the people who clicked on it have played it. I think they're just curious because it's number one. Yeah, yeah. It used to be ranked number one on the list. It's it's currently number 13, I think. Yeah. But anyway, like I say, I think people are just curious about it. But yeah, Gloomhaven, I should have guessed that. Yeah, that's my bad. Yeah, that's funny. It's kind of interesting because it has almost double the <laughs> the clicks of Terraforming Mars, which is number two on this list. Yeah, I, I believe it. Yes, definitely. <laughs> All right. If you can guess, let's see. You Actually, no, you've guessed three. Congratulations. You're staying on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, so but, number three on this totally list. totally cheating, Pandemic oh, yeah. <laughs> should be on there, I'm guessing. Uh, pandemic, pandemic is on Pandemic is on the list, but it is not in the top ten. Huh. 
because it has like 5,000 expansions yeah, I, as I well. I think uh, Pandemic is in the top 20. But yeah, I, I'm guessing if you uh, combined all of the Pandemics, you might have Guy a Project higher Mystica. Uh, Terra Mystica is not in the top 10, nor is Gaia How? Project. I'm actually kind of curious because I guess it doesn't Terra go Mystica by the top 10 is always. in the top 20, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so number three on this list is Scythe. Boo. <laughs> uh, number four is Arkham Horror, the card game. Uh, That's really weird. There's probably a lot of clicks there because it's got a big following, and there's probably a lot of people like asking questions in the forums. <laughs> oh yeah, like rules questions or something, and it's got a lot of activity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the next one is gonna make you laugh. The game of life. Are you serious? That's yeah. so strange to me. Yeah, that's number the five. The game of life. Uh, that's that was the sorry uh, Monopoly yeah. type of um, game. Yeah. But why life and not like Monopoly and sorry? I don't understand. I think people like life more than Monopoly in general. Maybe I remember I I that's liked so this weird. game when I was growing up and definitely would play this over Monopoly. Uh, so after that is Twilight Struggle, then Agricola, huh, and Agricola weird. has just over five million clicks. The next one is Kingdom Death Monster. <laughs> and that one, I think, is a, a similar reason to the Arkham Horror card game. I think this has got a pretty uh, big following and lots of rules questions, I guess. <laughs> yeah, or uh, maybe the Kickstarter, like, for every, every million that uh, Kickstarter million dollars or whatever, there was a million questions, million clicks. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. million clicks generated. And the uh, next that, one... I, I think that one is the most funded game on Kickstarter of all time, so I bet it's even clicks outside of BGG, actually, just people, yeah, like, it looking It used up. to be. Oh, it used it's to not be. anymore? I thought Frosthaven it was beat it. Okay, never mind. Used to be. Yep. Yeah, yeah. But it, yeah, Frosthaven eked it out, I think. Uh, so after that is similar reasons, I think Mage Knight is uh, probably one that has lots of uh, for, forum <laughs> that surfers. That me. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't think it's terribly popular. It might be like rules questions or something. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually maybe a good metric. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if it has a lot of clicks and it's not like widely popular, then it might just be that there's lots of rules questions. Um, also a very highly rated game or well-loved game, I think. It has a, a, group, a group of uh, people that just really love R it. No, the the number 10 is Android Netrunner. Oh, yeah. Sadly, a kind of a dead game, but still enough for top 10, yeah. I guess. I think it was... Didn't it get... Isn't it getting brought back? Um, I haven't heard anything. I thought I had heard something about that. Hopefully, I wasn't watching a video from when it, like... <laughs> <laughs> relaunched previously <laughs> uh i thought i thought uh yeah maybe i just watched like an old video or something but i thought i heard somewhere that android netrunner was getting a another reboot huh but uh don't quote me on that all right well congratulations you guys stay on the podcast for however long until we do this again and then and we'll see <laughs> like qualify more in the top 20 than the top 10 but good enough i guess yeah, uh, to be fair, you did get quite a few. Um, the next, I'll just tell them off real quick if you're interested. So 10 or 11 through 20 would be Dominion, Terra Mystica, Seventh Continent, 
Seven Wonders, Lord of the Rings card game, which is kind of the same thing as Arkham Horror card game in terms of why I think people are clicking on it. Uh, Pandemic, Catan, Puerto Rico, and Robinson Crusoe. That was going to be more like the type of guesses that I was thinking about, except Robinson Crusoe. Again, rules questions, sadly. It's like Probably, all, the, yeah. all the Ignacy games get all the clicks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Noticing, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, there's there's root in he, roots in uh, probably like twenty four, twenty five. Yeah. So there you Give go. Give it a few years and maybe it will climb. <laughs> yeah, it'll come. It, probably never Gloomhaven levels, but uh, it, it might climb. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for trivia. We'll uh, we'll let Hristo stay for now. Sounds amazing. So, as far as uh, games played, what did we play this week, Trevor? Well, So many games. Actually, some older games, but the most interesting game that we played recently, I think, and Trevor bought it like hot off the press, um, we were going to a game night and the copy was delayed of the game night person running the game night, and Trevor bought it from a store and played it we played it the same day i think i also read the rules the same day like yep. right there so queen's garden ah uh, queen's garden azul queen's garden that's the proper name right i just remember yes. queen's garden so yeah what did you think about queen azul queen's garden trevor yeah um so we've covered all the azul games recently on one on an our episode two weeks ago two a month ago two whatever the episode number of uh serial games is (laughs) (laughs) episode two or three probably um anyway so this is a brand new game in the azul series it's got pretty much the same dna as as uh azul so you're going to be drafting colorful little plastic tiles to then put on a board in front of you uh, this one works a little differently in that, um, so it's, you're building a garden. So, uh, the shape of the garden is just like clumps of hexagons and your goal is to pull these colorful hexagon shaped, uh, plastic pieces and then arrange them in certain ways in your garden so that they will score points. Uh, so the flow of this game uh, you are drafting just as like as with any other Azul game. The way that this one is different is that uh, every hexagon has a color and also a shape on it, like a tree or a bird or butterflies or a flower. Uh, there's six different kinds of shapes and there are six different colors. So when you are pulling a tile or tiles that you want to... Uh, later place in your garden you have to pull all of one color but those colors must all have different shapes or you pull all of one shape but the tiles you draft must be all different colors so one or the other you're pulling all the same color or all the same shape and then uh you put 
whatever you take, which could be one to five or six, I think was probably the most we ever saw someone pull. Uh, you have to place those in your storage area because everybody has a, a, a storage area. That's kind of new to this game uh, where you don't just pull as many as you want with uh, no care for how much you have. You actually have to be able to be, put them in a storage area in this game. Um, and then you can also, so part of this is you, during the game, you'll need to expand your garden to be able to place tiles. Is I think everybody only starts with six spots where you can actually put uh, put tiles. And so part of the drafting mechanism is that each round starts out with just these four Azul pieces on top of a stack of of these uh, garden expansion tiles, which have between, or it's a size, the the tiles have seven hexagons on them, but they may only have, uh, you know, they may have five or six playable spots on those, depending on the configuration. And when, when you draft a disc off of that main stack, um, after you do that, you move the top tile with the remaining pieces on top of it to the side and then you pull out four new uh colored pieces and put them on top of the stack so basically the options become you have more options as the round progresses and people are pulling more tiles and so it's it's not like your standard azul game where kind of everything is visible from the beginning of the round uh rather this kind of develops and your options present themselves as you go on which presents an interesting uh, decision point of, do I actually take tiles from the top of the stack? Because then I give other players more options, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, so you can pull tiles on your turn, or then you can choose to place from your uh, storage area onto your board. And this follows a very similar placement style as the Summer Pavilion game, where you have to spend a certain number of pieces um, in order to place the more basically the more valuable the piece you're trying to place is the more uh pieces you have to play to or discard to place it so uh and this placement the payment restriction is the same as it is for drafting you either have to play pay all of the same color but different symbols or pay all of the same symbol but different colors or did i say the same thing twice <laughs> I think I said the, basically yeah, you get it. You just I reverse mean, it. It's fine. Uh, all the same color with different symbols or all the same symbol with different colors. You have to pay that way. Uh, anyway, so then each of the four rounds, uh, different shapes and different colors will be worth a certain number of points if you have them on your board. And at the end of the game, you just score based on groups. And a group is three or more symbols in, the, in a clump together. So that's... Uh, blue clumps that's bird clumps green clumps tree clumps etc and uh the only other thing is when you're placing uh you basically have to either if you're placing a hexagon adjacent to another hexagon you have to either match the color or the shape and you can't have a repeat shape in the same group so if you have a, a blue group that already has a bird, you can't put another blue bird in that in that clump. Uh, and then at the end of the game, every clump scores, each tile just scores its value from one to six, and then you see who has the most points. Um, I thought that this game 
if you already like Azul, and in particular if you liked Summer Pavilion, I think you'll like this game. Um, I don't think it's earth-shattering, but I enjoyed playing it just like I enjoy playing any other Azul. Um, this one also didn't shoot off the charts for me, so it's not like I would play this Azul over every other Azul. It's just another option in the on the shelf. You know, if you're in the mood for Azul, I think this one's just as fine to pick as any of the other ones. Uh, what did you think? Uh, yeah, I thought it was uh, fine as far as the Azul game goes. I was actually a little bit concerned when you were explaining the rules at first that uh, it's very convoluted with these, like, when you take, it has to be different symbols, but the same color or the same color, different symbols or something. Uh, anyway, and then when you place, like, all these, like, weird restrictions of, like, different symbols again, but the same. Anyway, that sounded very convoluted, but actually, like, when you start playing the game, it's fairly intuitive, in my opinion, at least. I yeah. can see some people that are going to be kind of confused, though, like, if, I don't know, maybe. Uh, but it, it clicked with me. I, I'm not sure if it's going to click with everyone the same way is the only thing yeah i would i would say that's kind of true even as i was just explaining it before um you know it sounds maybe more convoluted than it actually is um and maybe it's just one of those things that you just kind of have to play around of it and then you say uh, then you get you know you get how it goes because it, it is pretty intuitive uh the way you play so at least that it has that going for it but maybe that's something to be aware of is that teaching this game might just feel a little more onerous than than teaching other versions of Azul, but ultimately I don't think that it adds a ton of complexity. Yeah, and overall I think the changes they made to just kind of the Azul formula are more positive towards strategy to some extent, but still... Your it's it has the same element of kind of kind of a push your luck situation where maybe at the end of the game, especially like when round two or three, you can hope that something happens. But at the end of the game, like you really need specific tiles, and the point swings can be quite large. And if they don't come out, you're just like, well, they didn't come out. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or and if someone takes them, or accidentally or not accidentally on yeah. purpose or something, it can like take away ten points or something. So yeah, go ahead. Yep. No, I was, I was just going to agree with that. And and to be fair, you know, if if that doesn't sound appealing to you, then I I think then maybe you probably already know that you're not super fond of the Azul games because that's just kind of what they are, you know, the yeah. the right colors coming out at the right time and somebody not taking them is kind of the whole you know, the core interaction in in Azul. But I think actually, and that's the other thing I was uh, concerned about, is they basically changing the drafting formula and they haven't touched that at all in the previous game. So I was like, wow, this is going to be really new. And it is kind of new because in the old games you set up like preset amount of factories or whatever they're called and then you just start drafting exactly the same way where you put the tiles is different but the drafting is exactly the same this one is kind of interesting because the first player it's not like the cheese of the older games of like oh there's like uh, four of the same color on a tile and i'll just grab them um usually there's not many like not a huge benefit to going first i think and it starts like it kind of builds up because it uh, you just have four tiles at first and then maybe actually probably you're gonna have 
whatever the first player takes plus four new ones so it kind of like just slowly builds up and also it has like a, an increased i think uh, kind of an action economy kind of a thing because yeah as trevor said you have storage um, and it actually looks pretty large and i think it's actually less restrictive than the first one for example because the first one basically what you take you have to like fit it immediately on your one two three four five shelves or whatever that you call them uh, and this one actually you have some flexibility but it does uh, penalize you for extra tiles by you kind of not using them and them clogging up your um, just tiles and um, you should kind of I think take only the necessary tiles to have like the exact actions that you want in the round um, if that makes sense so I think it has more decisions and the decisions are kind of deeper as far as not just like oh I'll take five reds because I have space for five reds and they're kind of going to score a lot of points it's kind of like I'll take two reds because that's exactly how much I need and hopefully by the next draft it's going to be the other stuff that I need because it has like payment costs and stuff involved so yeah I, I actually really like that the Azul series has kind of stepped in the direction of um, you can do something else other than drafting tiles on your turn. I, I think that's a that's a good step. Yeah, and speaking of which, um, also what has got over uh, Summer Pavilion, and I think it's Summer Pavilion more closely related to me because it has the same kind of feel of surrounding things to get benefits. You know, like um, kind of like Summer Pavilion, you surround those bonuses to get bonuses, whatever they are. I can't even remember. This one, you get Jokers, which is still really good, uh, like wild tiles. Uh, but the complication that it has is um, also, like Trevor was saying, your spaces start not built and the tiles are mixed in with the tile draft. The, the tile that you place, uh, what is it called? The paper tiles. Uh, it's a garden <laughs> the, expansion. The, the garden expansion pieces, which is like the paper that you actually place tiles on. You actually have to get that as part of the draft as well. So you're like building up your garden and they have built-in tiles on top of them. So that just like further complicates the decisions. Um, Summer Pavilion is basically like you can put anything anywhere here you have to actually get the paper underneath to start putting stuff on there so what i'm saying is it's kind of in my opinion it's like summer pavilion plus plus because there's yeah. complications on top of everything but it's still i guess manageable like it's not like a i don't know uh it's still kind of azul it feels like azul yeah yeah and, and i guess that this could be considered the most complex of the bunch um but uh, the feeling I had after I we played the full game is that it 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 didn't feel any weightier. It just the decisions you're making are different. Yeah, I I think it's uh, an Azul game for people who have played the first three and want kind of the somewhat next level. Yeah, that's a pretty good description for it. Yeah. Uh, even if even you you're still gonna have fun I think but I think it probably helps to kind of see where it came from maybe yeah and we did play with one player who had only played one other version of Azul and I believe he enjoyed this one so it, you it it's not like if you haven't played the other three you're kind of gonna be at a disadvantage for just not understanding kind of how the game goes um. So I I th I still think it's in the approachable category yeah, of games. Yeah. Yep. You can start with this one, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, all right. So that's Azul Queen's Garden. Uh, the other game that is on the hotness lists, or at least has been recently, uh, I'm looking at the BGG list. I don't see it there right now, but it is Alexander Fister's newest game, Boone Lake. And sorry, I was just pulling up the page for it. Uh, it's it's Boone Look. Boone Look, <laughs> because it's spelled with only uh, it's only one, one word. word. No, it's kind of funny. Yeah. I don't know. We were joking that he's given up on um, just spaces in general. It saves costs uh, at the printer. <laughs> Cloud Cloud Age was even at least capitalized. Uh, this one is not even capitalized, so he's giving up on capitalization as well. Uh, to be honest, though, in the box on the box itself, it's all caps, so it's someone's decision to yeah. to not capitalize it. I don't know. But, but actually, the N and the L are merged together. Oh, yeah, no, so. I was actually going to make a joke about that uh, in, <laughs> in the chat, but I couldn't find a way to merge them together yeah. because he's like slowly merging the, the words together, literally. So the, <laughs> eventually the follow-up on this one is going to be called Bake. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so this is Alexander Fister's latest game, and it is a larger game. Um, so... Effectively, I mean, the theme in this kind of doesn't matter. I guess we're settling, creating a new city out in Boone Lake area, and like you're just, I don't know, <laughs> you're, you're building buildings in the middle of nowhere. But basically, what this game is, uh, it's I mean, it's like a Western settlers theme. There's cattle, there's settlements, yeah. and there's wilderness, and you'd settle stuff. That's that's the theme, I guess. It's yeah, not super well explained. I think otherwise. There is something in the rule book, but I, I can't remember off the top of my head. But anyway, so the core of the game is the four players are sailing their ships down this river in the Bloon Lake area, which effectively is kind of a semi-rondelle, but it's more like a loop-de-loop <laughs> by the way it works out. Um, so on your turn, uh, each player will pull one of the available action tiles from this uh, bit, uh, I, I don't know what to call it it's it's basically just like an insert where there's like nine tiles I think it's actually like kind of the rondelle in uh, whatever the uh, Praga it's yeah, kind of the same it's, thing it's just not in the circle it's in the strip yeah um, so basically you pull a tile from this selection of available tiles you're gonna you're gonna do an action on it um, and then everybody at the table, including you possibly, also gets to do some sort of action that is related to the main action. Um, and then when you have all finished your actions, you put that tile at the bottom of the row or the column of you action tiles. You also Yes, and, and then you, you slide it up. Uh, depending on where you pull from your tile from, you're going to sail your boat up to a certain number of spaces. I think the maximum is four. And so you move your boat along this river. And except for certain harbor areas, the spaces cannot be occupied by the same boat. So uh, you kind of leapfrog over each other. And then uh, there are four interim scorings after the first player passes this uh, this dam figure on... or drawing on the board and then you'll score 
certain conditions after each uh, after each interim tri- uh, scoring is triggered, and then there'll be a final scoring at the end of the game. Uh, so basically, Haristo, why don't you tell us what you're doing during the game? Uh, cattle. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, no, I'm just kidding. Cattle is one of the things you can yeah. do. Basically, you're building pieces on the board. That's one part of the game. Uh, what are you building on the board? Cattle. Um, you're, I guess, like installing farms or whatever. For also, cattle. Also, you can do settlements, which become bigger settlements, whatever they're called, like towns, I think, or something. Uh, so I'm just looking at the board, actually. What else can you do? Good question. You can actually expand the board. That's a pretty significant thing in the beginning of the game. Apparently, the board is not... Uh, uh, ready for cattle so you need to make it ready <laughs> by putting uh, green spaces and um, or expansion tiles for like towns I guess basically so the board starts with some green spaces and spaces for houses but you can choose an action to expand it and uh, you get benefits obviously because you cover up bonuses oh the other thing you can do is uh, there's kind of a tech board or action board uh, where you can install these things which remind me of they're levers uh, levers remind me of uh, (laughs) wow I'm pulling blank. Uh, Island Game. Island Game by Bonfire Designer. (laughs) Feld. Stefan Feld. Stefan Feld. But what is the Island Game called? Bora Bora. Bora Bora. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Sorry. So, anyway, uh, Bora Bora has kind of the same thing where you can set up um, kind of these things and you actually push them down exactly the same way in Bora Bora and it's like exactly kind of the same thing I think it's very inspired by that Uh, so you can kind of get these actions that you can delay and trigger when you want um, when it's relevant even not even during your turn necessarily just like during an action that you're taking in the future Uh, yeah that's kind of what you can do oh you can also build cards (laughs) I should say the cards are a significant part of the game Um, it's kind of a similar vibe. We were talking about how uh, it's an evolution of maybe um, going around the Caribbean. Gosh. Maracaibo. Uh, um, yeah, Maracaibo. I'm really bad with titles for some reason. <laughs> going around the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah. Is this my trivia segment? <laughs> yeah, basically. You have to guess all the games that I am uh, really bad at right now. Um so anyway, I, I think it's an evolution of that in some ways. Uh, the leapfrogging kind of is like the jungle. The cards plus board is kind of like the other game, basically, like the like Barakaibo. So some kind of DNA shared with that, I think. Uh, but yeah, the cards themselves have effects. Some of them push you up on track. Some of them can actually give you cheaper settlements so they can be kind of like the other actions but cheaper or with some kind of benefit or whatever. Um, or you can trigger a scoring. If you trigger a scoring, you pick one of the four regions of the board and it doesn't score. <laughs> you just get a benefit from it. Everything else scores. When I say scoring, it's kind of weird because it's actually money. So it's like the income generation in the game. I don't know why it's called scoring. I think it was actually referred to as scoring in the rule book, but it's kind of weird because you don't really score. You just generate money for everyone. Yeah, um, I guess you could score if you have that. There's one lever space that 
turns it allows, into points. Allows yeah. you to get points as well as money. But um, I think most of the game people just get because that's an extremely expensive lever, and you usually should get it towards the end of the game. I think, or like if you invest in it, that's just weird. Actually, I need to try if it kind of works. I actually watched a playthrough, uh, and they used that, and it. Uh, it did quite well actually yeah i think it might be good if you it might actually make the board worthwhile because uh speaking of which i uh, my impressions of the game are that the board is not like good enough for some reason but maybe that's the lever i'm missing i don't know i keep thinking of kind of what how to make it work um but I uh think, well oh i see what you're saying like the board itself but the so this has kind of a terra mystica-esque uh, relation here in that when you're building stuff on the board you're uncovering things on your p personal player board and everything that you've uncovered becomes income both money and points and then also uncovering your board unlocks two extra herdsmen or cattle guys or populate inhabitants i think maybe they're called um which allows you to do more things um because basically, for to, for certain actions, including putting cattle out, you have to spend inhabitants. So they're also a kind of a currency in the game. Um, but I I think what you're you're probably referring to is that having things on the board doesn't like the in the interim scorings or or whatever it doesn't actually translate to a lot of points the pieces are, that are on the board is that kind of what you're getting at yeah yeah basically as far as points goes um yeah it, it it looks like it's a really cool engine type thing that you can set up and kind of run and it it does kind of work but i think there are a lot of cards which are I'm just actually looking at them on a screenshot. Like they improve the tracks where there's also tracks for income. So that's, you can just straight up go on a track for more income. And it also gives you an end game bonus. I think those are also kind of powerful. So I don't know. There's, it's actually kind of very opportunistic. It's kind of like Maracaibo. You can try to make different strategies work. I just, my experience with the board hasn't been super positive, I guess, um, altogether. I think you just had kind of have to do a little bit of everything maybe. Yeah, that's that's um, pretty true, I would say. Um, so, oh, but so before I come back to that, uh, the way you play the cards. So as Risa was kind of alluding to when he mentioned Maracaibo, is that Alexander Fister designs these days um, kind of are focused quite a bit on using cards uh, for both building engines and and making actions better as well as using them as resources. Um, and so you, you are doing a lot of card play in this game, in addition to playing with the wood pieces from your, your, your personal player board. Uh, but the one thing we haven't talked about is how resources are produced in this game. There are no actual resource tokens, except for the vase or the Voss tokens and then money. The other way resources are produced in this game is you have these two boats on your player board that can be in one of four spots and each of those four spots is a resource type and basically if a boat is in the spot below a resource type then you have one of those resources and then there's actions to add production factories to your board so you're producing more resources and then basically the cards 
have a combination of money and resource costs. And so you have to position your boat, your boats correctly. Uh, it's free to sail your boats to the right down river, but then you have to pay two money to sail the boat back up the river. Um, it's a little confusing because these boats have nothing to do with the boat on the board. Exactly. They're like canoes, <laughs> yeah. I guess. You have resource canoes and then you have your main like central Where you board. Are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, but to your point, so this game, there's a lot of things you can do. But should you? <laughs> but should you? Yeah. Because <laughs> I mean, the I question. mean, if, if if you look at a picture of the board, you're gonna see like the main river sailing around, and that's kind of the game timer. So you're watching what resources do you want to land on, uh, and then when are scoring is gonna trigger. Then you're also putting out these hex tiles that may get you benefits for covering things up. And then once those hex tiles are out, you're looking, well, where can I put my inhabitants to then build a small house, which then can be upgraded to a large settlement. And I want to put cows next to large settlements because then they score points. Um, And then you're also trying to pay pay attention to cards that can move you up the card income track, which is how you draw more cards every round. And then there's a money income track that gets you money at the beginning of each, after each interim scoring. Um, And then if you're towards the top of both of those tracks, then you'll get points. There's also these uh, scoring tiles at the bottom of the board, and you have to select one of those tiles to score each interim scoring. And if you don't meet the conditions of scoring, then you actually get negative points, but you actually don't get that many negative points because you're either, if it's the first, second, third, or fourth interim scoring, you're getting minus one, two, three, or four points, I think is how that works. There's one which is doubled. Oh, so that's right. You yeah, should your probably, own. You should probably score that one positive, which usually is the four, which is the final round. Yeah, exactly. So, and and then you're picking points up on every card you play. There's interim scorings. Uh, there's point income for uncovering your board. You also get points if you have a certain number of levers on your player board. So you're also trying to do that. So to your point earlier i think that this is like the a true representation of point salad game like everything yeah, yeah, you yeah. do translates yeah. into points and some things don't translate into lots of points like every time you score it but over the course of the game maybe that thing that you're doing equals like 20 points cumulatively um so it's kind of it's almost a turn or, or a game of lots of small turns um, or maybe lots of medium turns, I would say, because I don't know that you have any small turns in this game, but maybe you do. Yeah, speaking of points out, the scores get pretty ridiculous. So we, in our game, it was like 250. We had a really rushy game, and even in the really rushy game, it was like 180 or something. I've heard of uh, slow games where people... It's like the players actually control the game in this one because... If someone goes really fast, it's kind of like Maracaibo. If someone goes fast, the game is shorter because they rush it, um, because the, the rounds are determined by the f- boats going into harbors or whatever, the big boats. Right. So if someone's like trying to go fast, then the game's going to be shorter. But I think if you take your time, I've heard of scores of like over 300, especially in probably in like a two-player game where it's yeah. going really slowly. I kind of think that that's... I'm Having played Maracaibo like... 30 times now it's not gonna happen I, with our group at least no and, <laughs> uh, and honestly f- i don't forward to meta gaming <laughs> <laughs> yeah. honestly i don't think that's the right way to play the game though i mean well quote right way uh but because i've played both with 
you know, real people uh, trying to win. And I've also played against the AI, which I guess is designed to play the game in a way that the designer thinks a person would play the game. And the AI is fast. Right. So I think oh, that's that, good. I think that the I think that the intent of these types of games is you shouldn't be lollygagging. You should be trying to plow through the game and just kind of get out whatever you can. And like you said, with these games you just kind of have to be opportunistic and ad- adaptive. So like if you're committed to something that's just not working, then surprise you might get to the end of the game and and find you didn't have a very good time because <laughs> you kind of have to you kind of have to be flexible, but at the same time, this game is big enough and long enough that I think you can you can commit to to doing certain things. Um, anyway, I I I like this one. I don't know that it surpasses some of my other favorite Fister games, but I did feel like this. Um, I, I felt like this was a, a solid design. I enjoy the action selection. I enjoy the following. Um, it's fun to put the stuff in the middle of the board and kind of build it out. It almost gives off a semi terramistic vibe because you're putting stuff in the middle of the board and you're uncovering things that just get better as you go. And unlike Terramistica, you're never covering anything back up. So it's just always getting better, assuming you're continuing to do it. And then I liked the lever system that gives you uh, benefits. It 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 actually some of the spots just to get into it real quickly. Some of the spots give you benefits when you are unable or choose not to do. For example, a follow action. So if you can't do a follow action or you don't want to do it, you can forego that action and and activate one of your levers, which might give you an upgrade to change one of your small houses into a big house or like get you another lever. There's also levers you can use when you don't do the uh, play a card action. So if you're missing out on a card placement, you can do a lever. So I think that there's um, there are thoughtful ways. I think that that uh, Fister kind of approached the nature of the just like the <laughs> incredible amount of cards in this game, uh, and, and I appreciated that. So I, I think it's a good game. What what do you think so far? Uh. Yeah, I was a little bit scared actually also going in because we heard uh, stories about really long playtimes because every action is everyone and everyone's action, so you're always following. But at least with the groups that I played with, that hasn't been an issue. I can totally see how if someone's thinking a lot, like because every turn is like some you're following with something and there's lots of decisions so you just have to make a decision and just kind of go with it i think but i can see how it can drag with like the wrong group or something but i was hearing stories of like four or five hours or something for the full game for the first game with three players and i was like wow this is gonna be a disaster so i was kind of actually maybe pleasantly surprised that it wasn't a disaster (laughs) to begin with (laughs) um that it works but i think it's also because we play board games and the groups that i've played with also um were people who weren't like aping over a lot of things uh but i don't know the game kind of reminds me of like a weird mashup i'm still super kind of undecided about do i actually like this or not but i think i like it about the same as maracaibo maybe uh more than cloud age for sure because that i think was just kind of bad in my opinion but let's not talk about it but um i think it's still if if i had have an issue with the game it's not really about 
kind of a lot of, some people have also criticized that like it has too many mechanics or something like for example the canoes like why are there canoes that could have been just something different or simpler the cards have like time of day where you have to play them i think that's actually fine uh, my biggest criticism is probably the same as mark Ibo is like you're drawing cards off top of a deck and you start with i think six discards or eight discard two or something like that or just six i know i think it's just draw six so you don't even discard any at the beginning of the game and some cards have engine elements which are really good at the beginning and some have like building discounts which i don't think are really good at the beginning of the game and uh just by the nature of the game you're gonna get certain cards or not and that was the same in mark Ibo. i think mark Ibo, like you kind of wanted assistance or whatever they're called the first round to install around the map it still kind of worked if you didn't get them but maybe not as well and just by the nature of you're drawing off the top of the deck it's kind of less um, exciting but like suppose that he had a market uh, that would increase the ap even more I'll, yeah i'll so, bet you that's why there's not a market in this game just is because, because like <laughs> yeah six hours instead yeah of the five. play time was already pretty up there because i was just sitting here yeah. thinking like why isn't there a market in this game it's it would have it would have been too complicated yeah like it would have been a good addition i think to have a market yeah no but i think it it works uh the what saves it is that you churn through a lot of cards like yeah. you, you discard a lot of cards because of effects or to pay for cards Actually, I think in this game, there is effectively kind of you pay with card for cards with cards because you can discard cards for money and cards cost money. So it's not direct pay cards with cards like Race for the Galaxy or something where like a card costs five other cards. But basically the useless cards you can discard for money and then the money you can buy better cards with. So that's kind of the saving grace, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, I've I've gotten pretty used to how I guess Fister intends this game to work because I've, I've, like I said, I've played Maracaibo like 30 or 40 times. And so I've gotten used to knowing. Deal, deal with what you've dealt with. Yeah, yeah dealt. deal with what's available to you. And then I've also gotten accustomed to in, in that game knowing when you should dump your hand when you should pull a card for the market or pull off the top. And if you don't pull off the top, what can you do that? So like, I think, I think that that's a fair criticism. And if you just don't like that, that, that mechanism, you don't like it, but I've played a, a whole lot of, Oh my goods. And I've played some of his earlier games and like, that's the starting point DNA for Maracaibo. Um, I haven't played the expedition Port in New Royale Dale board game yet. Yeah. Port Royale is kind of like, I think in the same vein, but then it turned into a full on board game in, uh, in Maracaibo and cloud age uses similar elements, but not entirely for, for the card play. And then I think that, uh, Boone Lake is kind of the next step in the ideas with what was going on in, 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 uh, Maracaibo. So I, I appreciate kind of how you're supposed to play that and so it's not a point of frustration for me but i i get why that might be annoying you know if somebody yeah. gets a an engine card at the beginning and you don't is that frustrating yeah is it the end of the game i don't think so uh because there's uh, there's enough things you can do over the it course of the game <laughs> i don't think so but yeah, but you know prove me wrong show me the show me the statistics and then i'll then i'll believe you no that's fine uh no i mean it's whatever uh it, it's fine i'm i'm fine with it in this game for some reason i think just because it's interesting and the decisions are interesting enough uh to kind of overlook that maybe uh it, 
overall it kind of reminds me of some kind of a mashup game like it almost is like he looked at a bunch of other games and took elements from them like i say everywhere i look i see kind of inspirations from other games for some reason and maybe his own as well yeah uh, yeah, I would agree but, with that. Yeah, like the map is kind of from Terra Mystica. The four scorings actually remind me of underwater cities where it's not really scorings as much as like you run your engine. It's kind of the same as underwater cities. Like you're not really, uh, I don't know, you get a lot of resources and coins and cards and points as well, but also like you get resources four times per game. So you're kind of like setting up an engine to run not frequently, but a few times per game. Um, the strip with the tiles selection reminds me of Praga like I say Bora Bora for the pushing down actions I think the boats are actually pretty unique and I actually think that's a neat mechanic like it um, I can see how like you want to orient your production towards these kind of end game goals and I guess if you play a lot you'll, you're maybe going to learn what cards require what kind of production so you can kind of gear your production towards cards plus end game goal maybe I don't know but it, it works like the canoes actually work and I think I would the game would be less if they were missing like some people are saying um, I'm not sure if the Terra Mystica stuff is like full fledged says works as well as Terra Mystica I think the answer is no but it kind of works in a simplified way it's like it's kind of like Terra Mystica cut, but cut without Mystica. the uh, it's <laughs> without like Terra Mystica but uh, like if you've ever gone bowling and used uh, the the bouncers on the side of the <laughs> yeah basically because yes. like you you don't have to worry about when you blocking yeah like largest network <laughs> yeah you don't have to worry about any of that kind of stuff the placement of cows next to settlements is kind of inconsequential, I think. Um, and you don't have to worry about when I build my small house into a large house, my small house then comes back and I'm not getting that up, that income because you, you never cover anything up. So in that yeah. way, it's kind of like more friendly. The interaction on the board or the boards is blocking like you are stealing rewards from other people i think that's actually the biggest interaction uh the terra mystica stuff that i'm talking about that i don't think works super well is like you get two coins if you place a cow next to a settlement and if you have uh, if there's a large house next to your cow i think you score points but that's fairly minor um like don't build a game around that in my opinion because it's not really going to yeah. score a lot well one thing i with the money and the cows, I th that meant more at the start of the game. And then... Money actually is pretty decent, and it's good because you control that, because you yeah. can see where oh, you're going to place cows. The points are just super oh, inconsequential, yeah. I in think the points, over the course of the whole game, I probably scored 15 points, maybe, off of cows, which is... You know, that might sound like a lot, but in a game where you're scoring 280, like or 280, you know, <laughs> yeah. maybe it, maybe it doesn't matter as much, but I don't know, maybe the score is close enough to where it does matter. Um, yeah, no, what I'm saying is like, it's a very simplified version of like, don't buy this for the interactions on the board because they're very, very simple. It's kind of, it, like I say, mostly it's, you're looking at the reward, like three coins and who's going to get it first. I think that's the yeah, biggest probably yeah. interaction on the board. That's but overall, true. I think the, the game actually, uh, I think somehow it kind of works pretty well. Also vases, because why vases? I don't know. It's like a weird resource idea and that. I don't know. I think I that mean, could have been removed from the game. It, well, 
I do appreciate the function the vase serves because it is a difficult it's like a to get resource. Yeah, it is a difficult yeah. to get resource and then the ways you spend it are either for a good point conversion or it is a cost on very valuable cards so yeah yeah no, no i get why they're there it's yeah. just kind of a weird idea like there's infinite resources and there's vases why i don't know but it could have been a there. cow trophy or something yeah they're <laughs> they're there and the game somehow works um the biggest problem actually is if you think about it there are no locks anywhere that i can see so the physics don't quite work out <laughs> with the river your physics have no place here <laughs> how how are you going always uh downstream and that there's a circle <laughs> uh, and you're going going back to to where you started <laughs> uh so the the last the last part that is up well I no you could have a circle I, I, no you, it, you it could it could it could be man-made <laughs> oh, uh, the the riv the river's flow is so strong that it like circulates the circle in the yes. whirlpool yeah i guess yep. <laughs> no, it's just kinda, no and then there's i'm, uh, I'm, I'm joking that completely <laughs> then like, like a, doesn't matter whatsoever yeah anyway it what what Chris was referring to is and i called this a loop-de-loop -loop at the beginning of this discussion is you start there's the locks game somewhere they're just not yeah gone. you you sail down the river and then the, in the first round of the game, which is after the first interim scoring, you take this upper level, uh, and then you There's like a loop junction, back around. Yeah. And the Y junction loops you back to yeah. kind of... You loop back around to start the second round, and then during the second round, you sail all the way to the bottom. So you kind of do a loop-de-loop. Yeah. Why don't you write a letter to <laughs> Alexander Pfister and ask him about the physics? It, it's kind of like at the water park where you like slide that circular thing, you know, that like a funnel. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. There's uh, <laughs> it's like that's completely who cares. It's like on the roller coaster where they have like magnets that make you go faster. They have a portion of the river that just starts going faster again. Yeah. It's a physical phenomenon that only exists in uh, Boonlik. Yep. Boonlik. All but right. Anyway, no, I, I think it works. Um, I'll, I'd play it again. I'm I'm still interested in playing it, which is good. So yeah. Yeah, that's that's uh, better than Fister Game has done with you in a little while. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's Boon Lake. So let's take this discussion into metagaming. Sponsored by Facebook. Well, <laughs> no. uh, we were just going to talk about like meta first, but I think basically what we're talking about is meta gaming. Uh, what kind of brought on this discussion, I think, is a statement that we had when we were playing The Crew, actually, which is a trick-taking game uh, a week ago. Someone said that it's kind of fun that there is a meta that, you are expecting people to do certain things in this game, but I don't think it would be fun in a different game. And I kind of agreed. Um, so basically, I think in trick-taking games, there's this kind of formula or expectation of what people should play, and especially in The Crew, which is a co-op game, which actually is related to Hanabi, um, because that's also kind of a card game. It's not trick-taking, but it's like you're kind of expected to do certain things. And Trevor likes the crew, but hates Hanabi. 
So go, <laughs> I like go, Hanabi. In, go into it. Oh, but you hate the meta around Hanabi, I think, or what's expected for, from you yeah. at least on um, Board Game Arena. <laughs> well, I guess to your point, it might help. It might help guide this discussion a little bit to kind of clarify what we mean when we're talking about meta. Um, and when I think about the word meta, I'm thinking of basically like something that is self referential or like confined to itself so in the context of games meta could be there's like a way that is understood that you are supposed to play this game yeah, that yeah. is based on like conventions that have developed within the framework of the game yeah no it's it's true i the basically meta i think is like like you say self-referential stuff like uh, i deal with metadata at work and it's like basically data about the data so i think in the in like metagaming it'd be like rules about the rules you know yeah exactly that are not that's written, a good way of saying like, it un, unwritten rules about the rules of the game <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or like un- unwritten ways that you should play the game like game the game you exactly know? so it's kind of like uh the game has rules but you should know things that are kind of expected which are not in the rules <laughs> so, <laughs> so know the rules but sense. also know the rules that are not the rules <laughs> know the rules about the rules yeah yeah so there's kind of two ways that this meta can can pop up one way would be uh, kind of like Christo was saying with um, the crew force. and yeah, force <laughs> physical force. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you don't play uh, Hanabi right on board game arena, somebody will knock at your door. They will make yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's those ways of that meta can develop, which is there's sort of these unspoken rules that just become part of the way people expect you to play, and then there can also be meta. Uh, within just a group of players so maybe uh, maybe your group of friends uh, think that uh, Hristo wins every game and so just by nature you're all whenever there's like a take that moment you're always picking Hristo or something like that you know those metas I think maybe tend to be a little less fun that when they tend to target players but anyway those are kind of the two ways that meta can present in in gaming that I thought of uh, so to circle back on on uh, the the spike that you set up for me there, Risto on <laughs> on uh, Hanabi. Um, basically, it's exactly what Risto says. There's this community on Board Game Arena, and and Risto's the president, which physically force you out <laughs> yeah. if you don't play correctly. Yeah. If you don't play correctly, people will just like kick you out of lobbies. Um, basically, it's kind of like the this community has written a code of conduct for what you should do in any given situation and if you don't do it that way then you are quote playing incorrectly um, which can be a really unpleasant experience as you might imagine for someone who is not familiar with that meta or if you're like me think that well i don't want to play the way you want me to play i want to play the way i want to play that's why i'm playing a game uh even if the way that you play technically results in higher points but anyway um i kind of have mixed feelings on meta in gaming 
because I think that there's a lot of fun that comes out of kind of players having more knowledge of the game and knowing how it goes and, and, you know, understanding what things mean when you're playing a game, but it kind of crosses the line of the, the fun line for me when it then becomes, um, if you're not playing the way I think, thought you were going to play or the way I want you to play. Now I'm not enjoying the game and this is an un- unenjoyable experience, right? So like, I don't know, it's it's a thin line. Uh, I, I guess, do, do you get what I'm trying to say? Like it's it's fun to to understand no, I, each I other. I exactly what you're trying to say. But uh, then when it becomes yeah. like a mandate, maybe it's, maybe it's a little less fun. What do you think? Um, I think some people on Board Game Arena, especially with Hanabi, go kind of a little far. Unfortunately, when you say they've written, it, it's like they've written a code of conduct. It's very unfortunate, but they have written a code of conduct. <laughs> oh <laughs> you my can gosh. actually You can actually go to a webpage. I don't know if it's still up, but it's like someone on like... Um, that game for some reason has like the nerds really up in arms and people have written like really a lot about the game which is kind of amazing actually considering it's like this dumb card game which which is like 25 numbered cards but there is a um, uh, like a convention list and it's insanely long of what you should do and why you should do it and like in which situation you should do that in which situation you should do this and i get it um, i don't prefer to be so rigid though i think like if someone gives a clue that doesn't like apply apply to the convention or whatever i'm not gonna go crazy about it and like start kicking them and like you're not playing correctly and blah blah and unfortunately there are some people who do that um i know the conventions i know why they're there and i think that's the more fun way to play is to kind of um, understand I think the reasons more than the letter of the law you know if that makes sense because I think you can kind of be creative within the framework of what the they're trying to do with those conventions um, I don't think you should read it like the Bible and follow it like no offense to the Bible but like follow like the code of I don't know the tax law the tax code it's, it's not like you should read it um, I think you should read the intent of why the conventions are there and kind of play inside that framework and I think that's fine um, I think it's just unfortunate when you are super by the book about everything because also I think they break down in some situations um, anyway that, that Hanabi is really complicated that way but I think the same thing actually shows up in um, trick-taking games quite a bit especially partnership trick-taking games uh, in particular uh, some titles of games like uh, I haven't played bridge, but I think in bridge there's conventions where like you can signal your partner by playing certain cards, what they should lead with and kind of like by what you're dumping, what they shouldn't play. Uh, Belot is that way. Beloti, I don't know. Belot, I think is how you say it in French. B-E-L-O-T-E. B-E-L-O-T-E. Sorry. Uh, that's a super popular game in Bulgaria and in Eastern Europe and particularly Bulgaria for some reason and I think also in France. Um, also, I think like climbing games like Teach You, again, partnership games, uh, there could be a meta that develops around that game where you can kind of signal your partner what you should... Obviously, like it's not allowed to signal your pa- partner by uh, like pulling your ear or something which is what people joke about in hanabi sometimes i've heard like um 
you should stand up, turn around three times and pull your ear so that someone knows what card to play. Uh, that's beside the point. I think the point is to communicate with the game components, I think, also in those games. Uh, so, like, by the cards you play is usually how the communication happens in, I think, Tichu and Belot and uh, Bridge and whatever. And I think that's actually totally fine. I think that makes the game fun. Um, and I think if you really want to play competitively or something, you probably should talk about <laughs> with your partner like you know signs that you can do to each other or whatever um again i think if you get too ridiculous with it it's you're probably not having fun so i, I think there's a limit to again like the spirit of things versus uh i don't know just like a particular situation that you're really upset because it didn't work out does that make sense yeah yeah i got you I I would I think I would agree. I like I said I enjoy when I guess what I'm saying is I kind of enjoy more when the meta develops. Actually no. I was going to say just around the group that you play with. Um but I the the game that keeps coming back to mind is Root where basically if if you've played the game quite a bit, you're just going to understand kind of what you what things you should do and when and and that just develops with experience of the game so there's the meta of just understanding what actions mean and then you just respond accordingly uh i think i would like a little less if it was just like (laughs) people getting mad Uh, although it does happen you know because if you don't do something someone's like well you should have done this two turns ago you should have hit the vagabond and and stopped them because now it's your fault that they're winning um yeah it's an it's an interesting and thin line from when it is really cool in my mind and when it gets annoying basically it gets annoying when and and maybe i'm guilty of this sometimes it, it gets kind of annoying when someone kind of gets mad at you for not doing the right thing cuz then that just kind of sours your experience with a game to me actually it what really annoys me is like really ridiculously big mistakes and i don't know like your definition of big is also some line that is crossed somewhere but i think uh especially in roots i, I think the beginning mistakes the beginner mistakes are i guess forgivable because people don't know the game but like if someone wins by more than like five points i think that's kind of bad and somewhere someone made a mistake yeah. where they should have attacked them because when the game's not close when someone's winning by like i don't know like more than 20 or 30 yeah, percent of the next person's score get in their way that, that means it's just like the, the, someone attacked the, the, the wrong person and it's just kind of escalated from there maybe or something but i think that comes a lot and comes up a lot in area controls um i think uh and it comes a lot uh, uh, comes up a lot when uh, people don't understand the game maybe or don't have a lot of experience with the game because unfortunately also it's that way with Root. Uh, some factions are not obvious when they're winning um, and you should like understand the game because you you should also know that the potential of what they can do. So it's not just like, oh, like birds have uh, 10 points more than anyone else. So attack the birds and then they just like yeah, then they're go backwards. From the game. <laughs> <laughs> they go backwards yeah. by three points and you're like, cool, well, it's you like, just eliminated. Yeah. 
eliminated <laughs> that player completely. Good job. Well, I'm, I'm so well, glad you got rid of them. Now the vagabond is just yeah, like or the doing green, everything. <laughs> or the green people who score like 20 points in one turn, just like score 20 points in one turn because they explode and like move, organize, move, organize, move, organize. And you're just like, good job. So it's just kind of knowing the game and knowing what the potential is and i think that's really difficult in some games and i think all area controls have that element of like some of the information or what factions can do is hidden so you shouldn't just strictly look at how many points maybe people have it's also how much potential people have to score a lot of points suddenly at the same time and that's really difficult to i think balance in some games especially swinging games like uh, eric lang's games but uh yeah that there's a lot of i think kind of meta maybe around that um that's possible in area controls yeah. in particular and maybe it's really hard line to draw between experience with a game versus like a set of unspoken unspoken rules because um, i guess the unspoken rule is in root is hit the leader um but yeah also the fun knowing, part, knowing who the leader is, is yeah difficult sometimes. yeah that's the what i'm saying is leader, the, the not fun, just the points yeah exactly the the fun part of that game in particular develops when you have a group where everybody understands that and then you don't have to you know worry about people making wrong decisions because everybody gets how it goes and and they're not required to do any certain thing in a particular situation but if the opportunity presents it to presents itself to that person then they know when they should take it yeah yeah but i think it's fine as long as like the game is pretty balanced and i think that's uh the most fun i've had with air controls in general and like for example el grande reminds me of el grande during uh, assault con everyone was like within five points of like 90 or something at the end of the game which i thought was pretty good actually um i've seen some broken games of el grande um but yeah, I, I think as long as scores are close, it's it's fine. Uh, actually, another meta I was thinking about, uh, speaking of air controls and drafting games, um, drafting games have a certain meta, I think, or at least maybe in our group, maybe it's the same with everyone or it should be. Um, I think the meta in drafting games is like, don't have one person have everything of one thing. Yeah, <laughs> if, if, if if that yeah. makes sense. Well, um, that person's gonna have a really good time though. And I think it's really good when the game itself is designed that way. And I think that's actually why Nidavellir is a really good game because uh, the game scores according to someone having a lot of the same thing. So you do want a lot of the same thing, but everyone wants a little bit of everything because it has the heroes like recruiting mechanic, which I think makes the game really interesting. Um, if you haven't played it, basically, like I say, the scoring is based on having a lot of like green, for example. But if you have one of each color, you recruit a hero, which gives you an ongoing ability. So it's always kind of like a really good, I think, uh, decision and really good design because it's not like everyone just ignores the colors and just goes with they pick a color and you just like recruit the infinite of that color and it's as simple as that because you want a little bit of everything to recruit those heroes so i think that makes for a really good game unfortunately i think some drafting games don't have that so you can totally end up with something broken where like someone goes for some set collection thing and they just collect everything of that and win by a thousand points because no one bothered to stop them or 
kind of recruit any of that color or whatever they're doing, you know. Uh, but I think that actually that's why Nidavellir is so good because it's built into the game where the game itself benefits you from kind of taking colors away from people who collect them. Yeah, a lot. You, you might even call that sort of a guardrail mechanism where the you know, the good the, euro design yeah, like the well yeah i mean the game is aware of itself so it gives incentives to cause the players to kind of balance the game out yeah so yeah I, I, you might call it guardrails but you could also characterize it as just it's just good design because it's putting the proper incentives in place but I mean, like, for, I'm thinking of actually something like Sushi Go. Like, it doesn't have those guardrails, so if you're not careful, someone can just, like, collect some ridiculous set of, I don't know, something that scores a lot. And if no one stopped them, tough luck, because <laughs> they scored so many points. <laughs> we and don't... that could totally happen, because it rewards you for just... It doesn't have that uh, guardrail that Nidavellir has. We don't talk about Sushi Go. Or Sushi Go Party. I think Sushi Go Party is the better <laughs> version. Yeah, I have that game, but I, I have I have never won that game. I'm just whatever for whatever reason, it always huh. just goes terribly. <laughs> well, people are probably watching you and blocking your stuff while yep. someone else is collecting the stuff that they want. Yep. Which is the meta I think in those drafting games is uh Azul yeah, actually yeah. has the same kind of thing. Like if you don't watch the person to your left, um, especially the first three where the drafting is more simple, they can totally like you have to sometimes uh I guess take if you're if all things are equal to you, you should probably look at the person to the, to your left and like take the stuff that they want. Yeah, <laughs> because, oh, that because otherwise, otherwise you just set them up for ridiculously yeah. powerful turns, <laughs> and it's yeah. like lols. I don't even. I'm not even close to the running. Yeah, that definitely happens in the first one for sure. There is there if you go play that game on board game arena, there is plenty of hate drafting on yeah. that one. But that's kind of what you should do in that game. If all things are equal to you, I think otherwise you should probably do what's good for you, unfortunately, because yeah. I think the design is not as like balanced as, like I say, Nidavellir in that way. Yep. Yep. Um, do you have anything else? Because I actually have another category of games where there's a lot of metagaming, fortunately uh, no, or unfortunately. Uh, I don't know if you've played Puerto Rico, but it reminds me of I was thinking about Tabanusi this game. <laughs> because it has a lot of reliance, for some reason, on people doing the correct thing. I don't know how to describe it, but especially in Puerto Rico, I think Tabanusi, unfortunately, has some of the same kind of DNA. Basically sit to the left of the person who doesn't know what they're doing because they will set you up. <laughs> that's that's how I describe Puerto Rico in particular. Um, uh, definitely Puerto Rico, yeah. Uh, because, I don't know, um, There's it, it's, it's hard to describe how it happens in the game, but you should kind of always do the correct action, and unfortunately there's usually an obvious correct action, and it leads to a game which, to some extent, actually kind of plays itself in some weird way. And I've heard that criticism about the game. It's still fun to play, but I can definitely see it because the decisions in the game, I think, are kind of fairly minimal considering uh, like what actions are available to you. Um, 
I think actually a large part of the decisions in the game are which buildings to buy because that makes the game different. The actions themselves, I think, are very kind of sort of programmed because if you pick the wrong action, the person to your left is going to benefit massively. Um, it has to do with like production consumption, it has to do with shipping points, it has to do with like kind of balancing the ships, what colors they are. Like I say, very difficult to describe, but that game has like massive meta that you pick up on after the first kind of 10 games. And then it's just kind of, you can basically kind of predict what people are going to do because they should do that. <laughs> like I say, very difficult to describe. I don't know if you played that game like enough, but uh, back in the day when BGA was still kind of new and it had 20 games, uh, Puerto Rico was played a lot. So I have quite a few games of Puerto Rico for better or worse. So I've experienced I have some of that. Played it a couple of times, and the couple of times was <laughs> was enough. Enough. <laughs> did someone actually rage at you, or did you just kind of pick up on the thing? Uh, well, the game started off with <laughs> basically an auction <laughs> to sit next to the new player. <laughs> um, Wait, how does that happen on Board Game Arena? Because it like no, assigns you I randomly. It, I played it in person. Oh, oh, did you I mean see. specifically on, on Board Game Arena? No, in person is fine, yeah. The Board uh, Game Arena assigns you randomly, though, so no, you don't know who yeah. you're sitting next to. No, I have never I've never played it on Board Game Arena, but I specifically remember the uh, first time I played it in real life, two players who had played it before were kind of like joking with each other about who should sit next to <laughs> somebody. <laughs> um, and, yeah... Uh, Anyway, so and then I just saw how the game worked. It's like basically, yeah, the person sitting next to you can say, you have to do something awesome. Basically, so. what happens is there's like a production and sell for points. And if the person to your right is not careful, they can produce so you sell for a lot of points. <laughs> That's the biggest one. But there's other things like that, which have to do with like production consumption. Yeah, so you you might call that a design flaw, or you just might call it a game that doesn't protect uh, new players from experienced players. Yep. Um, but yeah, because there's still it, obviously a lot of people that like Puerto Rico a lot. I actually think it works really well. It's just that everyone know, needs to know what they're doing, unfortunately, and that's just the way the game goes. And I think actually, I don't know, I haven't played it enough, obviously, but I think Tabanusi actually has some of the same features uh, for better or worse. I don't know, I don't think it's as pronounced as Puerto Rico, but it definitely has like kind of a, I don't know, uh, people setting you up to do things or not, or yeah, with the whole like plan, build on top of my plan thing that can yeah, happen. Yeah, there's... Yeah, there's a lot of symbiotic relationships between the different mechanisms in in Tabanusi, and to your point, some of the the those relationships are less expensive to exploit if somebody else has laid the groundwork, like building building your houses or your buildings in the districts, the common districts is easier if you're using somebody else's project tiles and then that person also appreciates that you're kicking them out because then they go up on the mastery tracks. So yeah, there, there is, there is a certain benefit that you get by knowing when and where you should place, but Tabanusi might be different in that, 
a savvy player can just recognize what you're doing and choose not to do that. Um, but I've found that it's usually in that game. It's usually it's usually of most benefit. It's kind of a sh- rising tides raise all ships situation. It's good for you to do it, so you should do it. It's also good for another player. So just kind of weigh out: is it better for them than it is for you? But I mean that that just comes with knowing the game and knowing what they're getting out of it. So I, I see what you're saying. It, it's a little more nuanced, I think, in in Tabanusi. But yeah, there yeah. Is there's some more of that. things to do. It's not as obvious, maybe, but it kind of is obvious sometimes. But I think actually a lot of shares shared shared incentives games like that. Uh, also, like the parks in Ginkopolis is kind of a similar vibe. For some reason, just like don't work in our group, which is kind of funny because also uh, Barrage has some of that actually like you can play the game very functionally where you like always help each other out and try to like extract you know like circulate the water as opposed to like build a dam on top of another dam and like block (laughs) someone else which like uh, there's groups I think which are very like positive oriented and unfortunately I think we're very like negative oriented towards those kind of mechanics like I mean that's why as, as opposed to cap Capturing the water is which is output from someone else's dam. I think our group would would rather like build a dam on top of someone to like steal their <laughs> water. Unfortunately, yeah. but I think uh, a lot of games kind of rely on you for a better experience to kind of be more f- take the more like uh, positive mechanics. I think of cooperation. Yeah, well, that's that's just the meta from our group kind of kicking in, and one the. F- one example that comes to mind is when we tried to play the competitive version of CO2. <laughs> CO2 yep, and like the game just kind of like it was, we were never going to make it to the end of the game just because like it, it just wasn't going to happen, <laughs> you know, because the, the players we're playing with just knew if I do that, that's good for you. So I shouldn't do that. I should do something else. But then the game ends and the incentive to keep playing the game is not enough incentive to do the you know the collaborative thing yeah no it was very simple it's basically i'd rather tank the game than help you (laughs) exactly yeah and that's that's probably not the meta for everybody's game group but that's what it ended up being for that game in in our group but in uh, in the semi-co-op the game always tanks yes uh, the game always loses with with those kind of mechanics but actually uh speaking of which uh we were i was uh, gonna talk about i think because of that meta and like those kind of choices and the just the way kind of game groups go i think someone can actually have a really different experience with those kind of games um like imagine like a game of barrage where like no one built a dam on top of someone else for whatever reason just because that's the way they chose to play that'd be a very Uh, different game that would be a very very different game experience than like someone always building on top and like basically you just kind of learn to never build a dam on the bottom space because you someone will always build on top of you and and capture the water so like uh, i think there's actually a lot of games like that where um people have had and even me i've had way different experiences with people playing maybe playing the game with other people at like saltcon or something as opposed to in our group or whatever on like a Friday or a Monday or something. So I think the meta can really affect like how the game plays actually. Um, also something for designers to think about. I don't yeah. know, any comments about that? 
Just don't play. Yeah, with, I mean, pause, don't play games with co-op <laughs> mechanics in that group. Uh, that's probably a conversation around if you find that you're not liking games because of who you're playing with. Maybe you're not playing with the right group, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, if you enjoy the way games are played, maybe it's just, you know, s- certain games are just not going to work with your group. And I think that's pretty common across the boards. Some games work for some groups while they don't work for others. So, uh, and th- I think there's ways you can approach that, like in Nidavellir, where the game puts really strong incentives to to do the right, th- or quote, right things. And then other games like, um, you know, like Barrage or CO2, the game is just like, well, I'll let you make the decisions you want. Box, basically. <laughs> yeah, you can I do what you want and your, uh, your mileage may vary. Yeah, but it's kind of interesting because like you can definitely play Barrage in two ways and one of them is the confrontational way, the other one is the non-confrontational way. I think one that's, what ends up happening is really kind of a mix of things, but... I don't know. It's it's weird because the game itself doesn't tell you how you should play it. It's just kind of like I say, sandbox. You the group makes the game. <laughs> so you know yeah. there is there is a way though in this day and age where you can kind of test uh, what the designer kind of intended for the for the feel of the game to be is by taking a look <laughs> Asking at them. Well, yeah, <laughs> you could just ask them. That's a that's a that's an easier way Actually, than what I was going to say. I would predict that for a barrage <laughs> they'd tell you like I didn't intend a particular way, just play however you want. Yeah. Um but one way to to kind of get a feel for maybe what was intended is if the designer who designed the game is also involved in the development of the solo play then you can probably get a pretty good oh, feel. by the bot or something? Yeah, so like if the bot behaves in a way, a certain way, then you can guess that maybe that's how the designer intended for the game to actually play. That's actually kind of funny, but it's probably true. Like if you read what the bot wants to do, that's probably what the designer wants players to do. Yeah, but then there there are solo versions that are just like, well, play the game, see what kind of score you can get. So, yeah, I think yeah. The, or, those games I don't like very yeah. much. <laughs> or there's uh, Jamie Stegmeier for Stonemar Games. Uh, he neither plays any of his games solo, nor does he take part in the design of the solo version of his games that is entirely outsourced to the Atomo factory. So like playing the solo version of a Stonemire game is could very well not be at all what like the the designer wanted the game to be if that makes sense because he's just he's just not involved in the solo yeah, yeah. design. Yep. Uh no actually there is one game where um you did play without a bot but I found it fun and it was because the goals were more creative than get a high score. It was uh, accomplish weird goals like um, have cubes on every technology or like uh, colonize particular types of planets. It was Kepler 3042. So that's actually the only game that I've played where I've enjoyed it for um, where there wasn't like a bot automated to take particular actions. So, yeah, yeah, that was interesting. I usually get pretty discouraged when I try to play a game solo because the games I like to play... <laughs> often yeah, have yeah. really complicated solo uh, variants. So 
anyway, no, that's it, off topic. The, <laughs> the score thing works really well with engine building games, but it's also really boring because like, yay, I'm going to play again by myself without any interaction whatsoever and just try to like make the cheesiest combo that I can possibly make. Um, I don't know, just not, not so much fun, I think, without, yeah. with like zero interaction and zero blocking, zero anyone stealing your cards. Uh, yep. Just just not great. But anyway, that's like you say, beside the point. So meta gaming anything about meta gaming that we have missed i think we've talked about pretty much all the stuff that i wanted to talk about yep that's it on my end so i don't know verdict on meta gaming good bad i think actually um i'm completely fine with it in card games and trick-taking games and like number types of games uh not so much when i don't know other games maybe not not so much fun because i maybe want to play different ways experience new ways of playing the game i don't know but it kind of develops i think kind of naturally and you can't do anything about it sometimes yeah i would say if if meta is intended to mean experience with the game and the system good if meta becomes like people get annoyed blame, at you, blame people, yeah, got attack people because of reasons. I think that's not yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. Or if yeah, if if it becomes like you have to do something because of like because X is there, you have to do this. Uh, I think that becomes less fun for the the player that is kind of being forced to do something. Yeah, it is a little bit odd because I do still enjoy Puerto Rico and trick-taking games like Kanabi with lots of rules, but I don't know, it's something about like the mechanical and something about like the minimal decisions that you're still making or just solving the puzzle, I guess, is still fun for me. So there's something to be said about that, I guess, as well. But not for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I just wanted to mention a game that I think we haven't talked about. If we did, I apologize. But there was a game that I saw on Kickstarter, which I was actually really excited about uh, to buy not on Kickstarter. <laughs> because I think <laughs> I think the retail is going to be just fine for that game. Um, and the components on Kickstarter were just kind of overpriced and unnecessary, I think. It's like a silly uh numbers game which i missed and i was actually looking i remember that i was looking to buy this game because i heard really good reviews about it but i never looked at what the game is and the old game was called think straight with like str8 exclamation uh mark obviously puns like totally add to the game nice Um, no it it, uh usually it sounds like a party game because party games do that kind of um bad <laughs> titles you know uh but p- puns replacing numbers with letters with numbers whatever but this actually is not a party game at all it's like a very uh, kind of serious i guess uh deduction type game and very difficult to explain what the game is uh but it has to do with cutting c- cutting number sequences so you make educated guesses and you're trying to narrow down uh 
the from the guesses from the responses to your guesses what numbers you have in front of you and the funny th thing is you're not guess guessing particular numbers you're guessing ranges so it kind of reminds me of you know like looking for asteroids in search for planet x where you're like picking a range and it tells you what's in that range uh in this game you're picking a range and it tells you if the numbers in front of you which you can't see are in that range and based on multiple guesses with some clever rules and stuff uh, you get to hopefully find out what the numbers are in front of you um i think it sounded really cool um the potential for like a simple fun deduction game is there i hope it really works as well as it sounds uh but i'm expecting to like it quite a bit um i think the kickstarter is completely unnecessary they have like plastic numbers and like plastic boards for in front of you and like an oversized uh board which the board is just like a track of numbers so i think it's it's just way overdone um and it's all, all already passed anyway but uh i would definitely look at the retail release i think i'm probably gonna buy it like immediately when it releases uh because it sounds really cool and i actually really like those kind of puzzly games i really like the search for planet x i should probably actually speaking of solo games i think that one works pretty well solo because you're kind of just playing against other people anyway did, did i see that there's been an expansion for the search for planet x uh yeah i think so i think i saw something about an expansion i can't remember exactly what it is nope just kidding no there's a like a promo pack i don't think there's an expansion at least i don't see anything listed yet and i actually have the promo pack the promo pack is just components just like cooler components and um, it's not necessary but if you like the game a lot but anyway um what think straight or oh did i even mention what it's uh the remake is it's the lost code is what it is the lost code um it's they finally listed it as re-implement Things Straight that wasn't there for a while, so you can find it from Things Straight, just like re-implemented by the Lost Code. Uh, to me, it looks like kind of like similar, a similar game to the search for Planet X, but maybe even more to the point and simplified than just kind of like all about the number sequences. The, the search for Planet X had these like kind of weird like conference half guessing from other people's guesses vibe. Uh, Lost Code, I think, is more pure deduction. So anyway, it looks really cool. I'm really excited about it. I haven't been excited for the, the game like that for quite a while. And it actually might even be here by the end of 22. We'll see, though. Um, yeah, this is the uh, first time I've seen you say you're going to buy a game that it wasn't on discount in a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. And and I actually really like the designer. It's Leo Colovini. Um, his, we were joking about, he was kind of synonymous with bad games, I think, in like the early 2000s and 2010-ish. But the games that... Uh, are of his more famous games. They're listed on his profile. I actually like most of them quite a bit, even though they're kind of on the simple side. And I think that's what I'm hoping for this one is simple but good because they're not complicated games, the games he designed. He, I think he really wants to like cut mechanics and go to the straight to the point of just kind of playing something of fun over and over. That's yeah, the vibe I just, of his games. Uh, I just got 
Aztlan, or have you have you pronounced that? Yeah. One of his games that that it seems like you said, kind of very streamlined. <laughs> well, <laughs> very streamlined and bad. <laughs> I don't know if it's bad uh, yet. We'll try it, but yeah, I'm, I'll uh, look forward to playing this one. If anything, he actually has really cool ideas, I think. And I, I think he's very similar to Friedman Freeze in that way. Because I think Friedman Freeze also has really cool ideas. I don't know if they work as well sometimes. But I, I'm really excited to like see what idea he had about the game. Um, it's kind of a weird vibe with Leo Colovini, but yeah. Cool. Wow. Well, you have to let us know when you get it and we can play it. Yep. And I'll play Aztlan and we'll see how it is. Amazing. Yep. <laughs> Anything that you're looking forward to? Oh, uh, yeah. That yeah. Remember, actually. Well, I'll just throw this out there. Um, since I got a shipping notification for it, uh, Gollum, the new game from uh, Flaminia Bersini, Virginia Gigli, and Simone Luciani just hit the US, I think. And so copies are starting to arrive. This is sort of their next big crunchy Euro game that actually has an interesting theme. It's based on this 16th century legend of the Gollum of Prague, which is basically like this um, anthropomorphic creature. Uh, I'm I'm definitely not reading this from BGG. Uh, That (laughs) (laughs) Rabbi Lowe... L-O-E-W, animated from a clay statue to protect his people. Uh, Basically, big crunchy Euro uh, uses kind of this marble uh, mechanism for action selection. Uh, You shuffle these colored marbles into this 3D thing that will split them into five lines, and then you're going to take, uh, take marbles from the line to do a variety of actions. The uh, number of actions in the row that you pull your marble from will uh, determine basically, uh, I think, the strength of the action. Um, There's some color coordination there as well. I haven't read the rule book yet, but I just, uh, it it seems like it's going to be fun. There's also um, this mechanism where like the golems move along this track and if they get ahead of your students which are your like your workers i guess on the board or some some mechanism there basically it's like uh something you have to keep up with otherwise the golem uh might become dangerous and like destroy your neighborhood after which you'll have to like destroy the golem and bury it so anyway there's like uh i think that's effectively going to be a semi feeding or like keep up with it bro kind of action mechanism kind of like the um faith track in uh in lorenzo is kind of on my mind because i played that recently it's just something you have to keep up on and manage and i tend to like those kinds of things in games um so yeah, this one looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, action drafting, dice rolling. Just These are mechanisms listed on BGG. Action drafting, dice rolling, income, set collection, variable player powers, and variable setup. This just sounds so amazing, doesn't it? 
the face on the board is pretty hilarious i have to say yeah that's the, the golem there's a red face that has is wearing glasses or just has i don't know the it just has like holes for eyes and light from inside i think that's kind of funny yeah oh just kidding it i i thought that was its mouth you know and it's like ah but it's actually a nose so sorry it's not yeah. that funny um i've i've been told that the designer slash publisher consulted with uh like a cultural es- experts for this game <laughs> uh, so. i'm just kidding no it, <laughs> it looks uh, i don't know what to expect actually because it looks kind of unique i think like you say lots of new things uh so we'll see we'll see how it is i guess lots of spaces lots of boards lots has, of uh, lots of little pieces lots of colored balls <laughs> And on that note, yep. <laughs> we'll, we'll uh, go ahead. speaking of notes, you also posted about Viticulture Essential Edition, but oh, solo. Yeah. Um, I thought that's what you were going to mention, actually. I don't oh. know if it's worth mentioning, though. Well, I mean, it's just a, a new expansion for Viticulture has been Viticulture announced. Viticulture World. It's called, yeah, Viticulture World. And it's basically just going to add a way to play the game cooperatively. I think it has a new map or something i don't know uh i haven't read too much about it i just know that it's going to make the game cooperative um i don't know i i'm a little hesitant when it comes to combining euro worker placement style games with cooperative i think co2 actually did work really well um but viticulture is not the same level of complexity that i think made co2 a good experience you think it might be too simple and straightforward so, and obvious yeah i think if it's too straightforward and obvious then it might not be for me but i guess we'll just have to see actually i'm kind of curious i thought i was gonna just kind of not care about it but uh, i'm kind of curious what the co-op really is it looks like you kind of get like weird goals to accomplish throughout the game yeah uh, and everybody everybody has to make it to 25 points or something i think so like uh, um and then there there are not there as are, exciting as i thought there are ways to like trade things i think i've only i listened to the um, live cast that Jamie Stegmeier did when he announced it. See, that's the thing is I wish it wasn't about points. I wish it was about weird goals and accomplishing like someone has to do like 13 or 15 orders or something. You yeah. know, just some ridiculous, just like weird goals. Uh, just points is just kind of so meh to me. Yeah, I was, that's why I was kind of maybe a little lukewarm at first because it's, it's like, okay, well, everybody has to get to the point count so then the cooperative elements of the game are basically going to be trying trying to equally (laughs) yeah and like what what made me a little hesitant about it is if it turns out that you're basically just playing the same game then i don't i don't know if a cooperative version of that is for me you're trying to play the same game but you're trying to like not block someone from a space so that they can get their points yeah i don't know i don't know like i said i haven't read the rules yet to see kind of what it is i just kind of know generals about it but i'll I'll probably take a closer look at it to see if it's something i'm interested in 
Yeah, I wonder if uh, someone's gonna demo it uh, or do it, I'll find I'll see it somewhere. But I'm not super opposed to uh, the concept of actually worker placement co-op. Just I need to see what it is exactly. Yeah, I think it has to be done the right way. Yeah, and, and the the only one I can remember of like a Euro being cooperative that I really enjoyed was uh, CO2. Although yeah. I guess there is. Oh, CO2, I think what makes it work is exactly what I'm saying. You're holding goals that you want yes. to accomplish, and it's not about the point so much. I mean, you're trying to not blow up the game, but you're trying to meet these like weird goals, which makes the yeah. game interesting. But it, it, I, you do have to keep a certain number of points in CO2, but you're doing that to stay alive and not yeah. lose the game. Um, we'll see, though. I don't know. And I also enjoyed the co-op experience in... Uh, mountain in the hall of the mountain king. Yeah, um, that was fine. Yep. So there, there are examples where it works. So I, I just need to look at this one a little more. I posted about it on our Facebook groups just to kind of see if we can get people talking about it. Um, but we'll see. People are angry voting ten and one. <laughs> yeah, reason. this is. It That's has so been. Funny. It has been pretty divisive. There's been like I think members of the hardcore viticulture. Uh, crew who have been like, this Dude, is awesome. Well, both. There's some that have been like, this is awesome, and some other people have been like, this is stupid. Why would you make this cooperative? Uh, I'm surprised people are so angry. Like, Viticulture is supposed to be this kind of easygoing game in general. Kind of. I think you underestimate the rage of the Stonemeyer hmm. crowd. Weird. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's it's interesting though. It, it's pretty uh, po fairly popular game, and yeah, it's about time for a refresh. So I can see how it's yeah. Happening, I mean, maybe. he's he's been kind of hinting that there would be a viticulture expansion for a while, and so I think a lot <laughs> of people, yeah, not at all co-op. So I think a lot of people were getting excited about what could happen and then some people were really <laughs> yeah, excited yeah, about cooperative now. and some really weren't yeah we'll see anyway, I, i'm cool. not opposed to it i just i just need to take a closer look at it to see if it's something i like sounds good all right we'll call that an episode then unless you have something else nope that's it okay thanks for listening and we'll be back in a couple weeks Carnes and Cubes has been a production of Pod Cauldron. Check out some other great podcasts on the Pod Cauldron Network, including Bub Club, a horror movie podcast, Rabble Rabble Rabble, a comedic look at current events, and Steady Diet of Music, a bi-weekly fix of opinions by musicians. You can get a hold of Cards and Cubes via email, Cards and Cubes podcast at gmail.com or visit our website www.cardsandcubes.com We'd like to thank Kirsten Adams for designing our logo. Find more of Kirsten's art on Instagram at catcoffee, that's K-A-T-C-O-F-F-E-E -E. We'd also like to thank Lindsay Hobbs for composing the theme and thank all of you for listening and we will return in a couple of weeks.